Grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Well, last week we had the announcement of Emmanuel. Today it's the arrival of Emmanuel. And uh, the arrival of God, the arrival of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, uh, God with us, is a monumental moment in redemptive history. And uh, it's one of those things where we look at the birth of Christ and, and how do we have a, a fresh look? How should we be looking at the birth of Christ? And I want to suggest this morning that we kind of do it in a, oh, let's call it a William and Matthew kind of a way. What do I mean by that? William and Matthew are two of our grandsons. And our daughter, Emily, uh, texted us a picture of William and, Mo- and William and Matthew this Friday morning as they're looking out the front door side windows. Is that not the cutest picture ever? Now, why Friday morning and why were they there? Because Friday morning, there was actually snow on the ground. And for these two little ones, this was kind of, they have a context to where snow on the ground is not a normal thing. And they wake up and they look out and snow is on the ground and they just stand there and are in awe. Now, I want us to kind of look at Christmas in the manger and the birth of Christ with a similar freshness and awe. But in order to do that, you have to have a context Because William and Matthew had a context. And the context is every day they wake up and the grass is green. On this day they woke up and the grass was not green. So let me, as you're in Luke 1, let me just try and set a context of the birth of Christ here. Consider Genesis 1. You don't have to turn there. Just consider Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is the creation. It tells of God creating everything, and when you understand Genesis 1 in light of Colossians 1, where Colossians 1 says that the Jesus Christ was the creator of all things, that he created all things, invisible, visible, kings, rulers, authority in heaven and on earth. Friends, the one born in the manger was the one of Genesis 1. He was the agent of the Godhead that created all things. Uh, Consider Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve have sinned, uh, God comes and he confronts them. And he has a conversation with each of them. And he starts with a conversation with Satan. And he addresses Satan in that conversation. And that includes the fact that that God says to Satan, listen, there's going to be a child coming from a woman who you will bruise his head, but he will strike you down. There is one coming that will deal Satan a lethal blow. Friends, that's the one in the manger. Okay, let's take it up to Isaiah 53, written some 700 years before the birth of Christ. And in Isaiah 53, it says that, there, that one will be coming who would, will be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, oppressed and afflicted like a lamb led to the slaughter. May I remind us, The baby laying in the manger is the lamb. The baby laying in the manger is just no normal or even some semi-special guy. This is the agent of creation. This is the one that will deal Satan a lethal blow. 
And this is the one who is the lamb. By the way, why is that a big deal? Because don't just consider the past, consider redemptive history's future. Revelation chapter 5, uh, the other year when we went through the book of Revelation and we talked about in there out of Revelation chapter 5, John is before the throne room of heaven and, and the question comes up uh, because the father is sitting in the throne and he has a scroll in his hand and the question comes up, who is worthy to open the scroll? And in the conversation of in the beginning of Revelation chapter 5, the question is, no one is worthy. No one in heaven, no one on earth. We've searched everywhere. No one is worthy to open the scroll. And John weeps there. And John weeps because he knows that the opening of that scroll is going to implement the end times of God's redemptive history plan. And he's like, I want to get on to the program. And so in that, he's looking. And then all of a sudden it stops. And then he looks and he sees, standing next to the Father, One who looks like the lamb who has been slain. Friends, the one who is worthy to take the scroll is the one who is born in the manger. Consider Revelation chapter 19. In fact, let me read it for you. Revelation 19 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The Isaiah 53 one. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. John 1. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Hey, friends. May we have a William and Matthew sense about us right now that as we look to the birth of Christ, we remember that in the manger is the Genesis 1 agent of creation. In the manger is the one that will deal Satan a lethal blow. In the manger is the one who is despised and rejected and killed for our sins. In the manger is the only one that is worthy to take the scroll. In the manger is the one who is coming on a white horse. Who is king of kings and lord of lords. This ain't no normal baby. And so Lord, I pray as we dive in that you would stun us, spur us, excite us, and love on us. You came. How amazing is that? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, Bible's to Luke chapter 1. Let's pick up from where we left off. We're in verse 57. Verse 57. Look at the first four words. In light of what was just kind of trying to lay some context for redemptive history, first four words, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, it says, now the time came. 
Now, uh, that has a micro-reality to it in light of reading in Luke and light of what we've just been reading about and talking about with the birth of Christ. Now's the time. Now's the time for John to be born. Now's the time for the Savior to be born. But taking it from a big picture, from a whole redemptive history context, I love this. Now's the time. This is the time that the one is coming Let's keep reading. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, 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 he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. What's going on? What's going on is in that day, it was very common, especially for the first child, especially for the first son, to be named by the father's name or for sure by a family name. And, and John was not Zachariah's name. John was not a family name. Why John? Well, John, because of what we had looked at the other day, the angel Gabriel said, we're going to name this baby John. Hey, do you remember the whole story from a little bit ago? Uh, you go back, Zechariah. Zechariah, he's one of like 18,000 priests in the time of Israel at that time. His tribe, is, this is his time to come to the temple. They come to the temple. They're serving at the temple. They roll the dice. You only get one time really in a lifetime as a priest to be able to go in and do an incense offerings. Incense offerings were done in the morning and the evening. They roll the dice snake eyes. It's, it's Zechariah. Zechariah, it's on him. So this is the one one time in his life that he gets to go in and do the incense offering. And so he goes in the incense offering. Remember when we went over in the whole temple grounds there and, and he walks in and he comes in and he goes, there, there's the, the gate where the, the men and the women are and then they come in and then the, the, the men, the priests are there and then he walks up the stairs inside the temple. He's all by himself and he's going to do the incense offering and kawamo, someone else is in the room. And it is an angel, and it tells him, hey, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. You are going to give birth to a son, and you will name him what? John. And here's the whole thing. They had a child. They were an elderly couple. And here is, uh, uh, here is Elizabeth saying his name is going to be John. Way to go, girl. By the way, why is Zechariah quiet in all this? Zechariah's quiet in all this because when the angel told him that you're going to have a child, Zechariah kind of pushed back on him. Not like the details of how it happened, but really Zechariah pushed back on him because like, yeah, I'm not so sure this is going to happen. And so the angel zipped his lip. So during this time, Zechariah has not been able to talk all of this. So that's why Elizabeth is handling this. Let's pick it up, verse 62. And they made, and they made signs to his father. Why? Because dad can't talk. And so however they're doing it, they're making signs to his father, like, what do you want to name him? Inquiring what he wanted to call the child. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. Way to go, dude. And in it, it says, and they all wondered. Why? Because this is not normal. This is not normally how it was done. And verse 64, and immediately, Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke. And I love this. It, it, the first thing I have is he spoke blessing God. First thing he has to say. It's not like, man, have I been waiting to talk to you guys? 
<laughs> it's just like in this, it gives this idea he's blessing God. Verse 65, and fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. Friends, I cannot tell you how important that statement is, not only for what's about to come, but even to understanding the gospel as a whole. In this Judea region, word is moving already, and Jesus hasn't even been born yet. And a hubbub is going around and people are talking. Verse 66, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? They're talking about John. For the hand of the Lord was with him. All these things are being talked about through the whole area. What then will this child be? Because something's not normal here. Even the naming is not normal. What's going down here? I love that. They're asking the right question. I just want to sit on this just for a second here. Who is this child? We've already read that this child, John, is, telling, is going to be telling of one who's coming, the Messiah. This is the right kind of question to be asking, but I just want to make an observation. Many are curious but few even really ask the right question. Many are curious about Jesus. Few dive in to answering the question of who he is. And here, even though it's John, there's this idea of they're actually asking the right question. Observation. Few pursue the answer. Many ask the question. And at this time of the year, many observe the manger, consider it through, even ponder in their head, who is this one? And why do we do this whole thing that goes on? Question, have you dug into that question and gotten an answer? Many dabble with Jesus. Few dig in. We want to be a church that digs in, right? We don't want to be a dabble church. Out on that. Or a dig in, dive in. Who is this one? Last Sunday, we read accounts of Elizabeth and Mary. You can see the Magnificat and right before what we started with from Mary. Now it's Zachariah. Now that he can talk, Zachariah has something to say. Let's read this, verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to, our, swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him in all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before. You will go before. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. In the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. 
to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. There's so many things we read this and it doesn't quite honestly flow in a way that we comprehend some things. There's a whole lot of Old Testament reality. Remember, God has been silent for some 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament. And now we are getting these words from the Lord that are coming here. I'll just make a notation here. This beginning of what Zechariah says has a whole lot of Old Testament imagery in it. The picture here is that of an army that's to be taken captive, but help arrives and the enemy is defeated. I mean, just take that in the whole picture of redemptive history. That's what's really going on. Verse 68, the captives are set free, but in 69, the enemy is defeated. It's a total victory. And the word salvation, verse 69, has a sense of health and soundness to it, that no matter the condition of the captives, the Redeemer brings them spiritual goodness and soundness. It's a really cool thing. I'm not going to break it apart today. By the way, I'll note the latter part of it. He talks about what John will be doing. You see that? It talks about how uh, down in verse 76, how he will go before and prepare. He will give knowledge of salvation then uh, uh, regarding the forgiveness of sins. He will give light to those who sit in darkness and death. He will guide the feet of many with peace. John is the guy that points people to something. And might I say, we are the same. We are to be people that are pointing people not to ourselves as the answer, but we are pointing people to someone. And that's what John's task is. By the way, I wonder if those people who ask, what will this child be? I wonder if they got their question answered. Bring that back a little later. Verse 80, when the child grew, became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the days of his public appearance in Israel. The one's arrived. The one before the one. Now the one has arrived. Let's go to chapter 2, uh, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Politics don't change. <clears throat> Some comments on this, a little bit about Caesar Augustus. Uh, he was born Gaius Octavian. I love that name. Gaius Octavian. He just sounds like a tough guy, and he was in it all. Uh, he was the grandnephew, later adopted son, and designated heir of Julius Caesar. He was seen as the sole leader of the Roman world. And if you go back and take a map in that day, I'm telling you, it was a lot of territory. A lot of territory. In his day, he was given honor more as a god than a human. In fact, an ancient inscription in the day says this, Divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god. Imperator or victorious general, imperator of land and seas, the benefactor and savior of whole world. How ironic that under his human watch, the king of kings and the lord of lords is being born in his territory. Oh, the irony that God plays. Verse 2. This was the first registration when uh, Governor Q, I can never say that name right, and uh, so we're just going to call him Governor Q of Syria. That was a transparency moment. 
And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, here's what happened. So Rome, every 14 years, they would take a census. And it's really a wise thing to do. And, and they would take it for military purposes. They would take it for tax purposes. That's why I say some things don't change. Uh, the census for the Jews was a very intrusive thing. It was intrusive here because if you remember back when we went through uh, Joshua and Judges, that God's people were to be an established people. They were to be a priest to the world people. And they were to be functioning differently than everybody else in the world. But in this period of time, what's really going on is every time they would take the census, the registration, it was a reminder that they were not the people that God had called them to be. They were actually over Roman rule. And for those Jews, it was really a sad thing. But for so many of them, didn't really understand what had gone wrong. So each Jewish male had to return to the, quote, city of his father's name to record his name, his occupation, his property, and his family. They're just trying to keep record on who is in uh, their, ter- their country and who the people are. Um, I just want to note here, Caesar Augustus makes this decree, and we talked last week, the timing of everything falling into place is so cool. And every 14 years of registration comes about, and this is the year for the registration. And might I say, God is in control of every detail, from working with Zechariah on this is the day, when the dice roll to his name and he gets it one time in his lifetime. And this is the time when they are taking the registration where all the people come. Because God has a plan. And even in paying your taxes, God's using it. <laughs> that was not in my notes. <laughs> Verses 4 and 5. <laughs> Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea. Oh, by the way, remember Judea? Do you remember that? Just a little bit ago, we read about it. What was going on in Judea? All the people were talking. Who is this John? Hubbub is going on. And so now it's uh, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary. By the way, the house and lineage of David, that's a big deal in all this. Uh, To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, the one he was engaged to, who was with child. Um, A couple comments here on this. Think of Mary. Imagine, ladies, you're, you're well with child. And you have to travel some 80 miles, not by car. What a girl. 80 miles about to deliver a child, not by car. Way to go, girl. Thinking of Joseph. Um... It's interesting here. Luke doesn't tell us how Joseph, how the Lord brings Joseph on board here. We were with, we, we learned about Zachariah and Elizabeth, and then we learn about Mary, and then we're learning about uh, John being born. And in here, it's all of a sudden just like in Luke, Joseph is all on board with everything. But you can go to the beginning of Matthew and read the account where God, just in his love, comes along and helps Joseph to get on board with it. It's really a sweet moment here. Both of them are heading this and God has brought them along and he's bringing his very pregnant fiance along with it. Oh, so much story and all that. 
And they're headed to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is about five to six miles just outside of Jerusalem. When Karen and I were there some years ago, I remember we could stand over in the Mount of Olives. You could stand kind of on the temple grounds. You couldn't see over some some of the things there. But if you were to be there, you could look down and you could see Bethlehem off in the distance. It's really quite close to Jerusalem there, but it's just a five, six mile uh, south of Jerusalem. There's no major roads in that day here. Uh, I bring that up because uh, Bethlehem is like nowhere's land. Back in the day prior to uh, when Joshua conquered it, it was called uh, Ephrath or Ephratha. Uh, It was the place where Jacob buried Rachel. It was the place where Ruth met Boaz. It was the place where David tended sheep. And that's why Bethlehem was called the town, the city of David. Bethlehem means the house of bread. And just how cool is it that the bread of life is born in the house of bread? In that, verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, there, come back to that. The time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Ladies, it reads, it just sounds so easy, doesn't it? (laughs) Like they just showed up and, yeah. Um, It was a little bit more than that. Um, But she gave birth there, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There. There's a number of things we could talk about the there. Uh, I just noted some down. We could talk about the no room in the inn aspect of the there. We could talk about the uh, there. Is it a barn? Is it a cave? Is it under a house? Various thoughts on that. We could talk about, so when he was born, did he really glow? Because all the pictures have him glowing. Talk about that. Or when he he was born, were the binyard animals really smiling? Were they? (laughs) Or was there an actual little drummer boy there? We, We could talk about those things, but... And some of them actually are some good conversations. The former, not so much the latter. Um, but the big deal of the there is this. It is a lowly place. The there of Bethlehem is not the place that you and I would picture the Genesis 1 being born in. Or the Genesis 3 one that is going to deliver Satan a lethal blow. We would not picture him being born in nowhere land. It kind of fits with Isaiah 53. He would be despised and rejected. There would be nothing about him that actually in his form draws you to him. But I would not think... That the only one worthy to take the scroll from the Father's hand in Revelation 5, and when he is declared that, the entire heavens go into Revelation 5, this movement of expansive, glory-giving declaration on who he is. I would never think that one would be born in nowhere. And I certainly would not think that the Revelation 19 one riding on the white horse who has a name that only he knows. Faithful and true. 
on his thigh. King of kings. Lord of lords. I would not think he would be born here. I would not think that the second person of the Trinity, of the Godhead, would be born nowheresville. I would think it would be a palace or a castle or on top of the most magnificent mountain in all creation. But that's not his purpose here. His purpose here in redemptive history is not to come that all knees would fall and bow. Oh, it will happen. But this is not the time. And this is part of the question that has to be asked. If, 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 if you're trying to figure out what does, what does the Bible say about who, who Jesus is, you have to put this in the context with the whole of it all. And the creator one is stepping into our world in like the lowliest place possible. Nazareth was viewed as an unkosher-ish part of Israel. Oh, friends, that's our Savior. Philippians 2 says, that though he was God, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant to do loss, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Yeah, he would be bruised. Therefore the Father has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In fact, listen to what Jesus says about himself in John 6. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him, the Father who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Hey, remember verse 66 of chapter 1? The question of people asking about John. What then will this child be? I wonder if they got stuck in curiosity. Or I wonder if they actually dug in and got intellectual. And thought it through. Because friends... This is no cartoon. This is no precious moments moment. The king has come in a lowly place because he's headed to the cross to pay for sin. Emmanuel has arrived. 
And I think the question that they were asking is an appropriate question to be asking. Who is this John? Who is this Jesus? When you look upon the manger, who do you see? Is it an impressive figure in history? A warm, thoughtful moment? Or something far more marvelous? When I was a young boy... I began my relationship with Jesus. I had heard the verse John 3.16 again and again and again growing up. But for some reason on this particular Sunday, it was a Sunday to where it hit me like it never hit me before. I was a sinner separated from God. And I needed a Savior. I'd heard the stories but I hadn't understood relationship with. I was admiring and singing, but I wasn't in relationship with. You see, relationship starts somewhere. It always does. Knowing about something is not relationship. Having an informedness about something is not in and of itself relationship. It always begins somewhere. And Jesus Christ came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that's to pay the price for our sin. And it's not just knowing about that that begins relationship, but it's entering into relationship. I'm just asking, kind of coming back, I'm just asking that this Christmas you might consider looking at this whole thing from William and Matthew's perspective. By the way, I want to note, in the picture, William and Matthew are standing at the glass looking out on something and being very curious and admiring of it. But they are not in relationship with the snow. They are just observing it. There is no contact. There is no feet under the ground. There is no interaction directly with it from a distance. If William and Matthew wanted to enter into relationship with the snow, what do they need to do? They need to open the door and dive in. By the way, might I remind us of Revelation 3.20. Image is given. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will go in. Relationship starts somewhere. And might I just ask this Christmas the question of, have you just been looking through the glass, seeing Jesus out on the porch, and thinking that that is relationship? That's not. In fact, that's why Jesus in Matthew 7, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And then he replied, replied, but I will say, I did not know you. Why? Because you were peering through the glass, but we were not in actual relationship. Friends, if there's never been a time where you've driven the stake in the ground and began relationship with Jesus, it's time. Open the door and begin relationship with. When I was seven years old and I received Christ as my Savior, standing between a drinking fountain and a bathroom door, and I'm not kidding, waiting for my parents to come out from their Sunday school class, my relationship with the Lord began there. I didn't know a whole lot. I just knew I was a sinner and I needed a Savior. And if you've never entered in relationship, 
It's time this Christmas. Here's how I want to finish. We began with kind of a big redemptive picture. I want to finish with kind of a creative redemptive picture. Matt Papa, 10 minutes. Watch from beginning to end. And let's see the Lord.